good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Well, please turn your Bibles tonight to Exodus chapter 27. Exodus 27, and reading together from the verse number 9. And thou shalt make the court of the tabernacle for the south side southward. There shall be hangings for the court of fine twined linen, often hundred cubits long for one side. And the twenty pillars thereof and their twenty sockets shall be of brass. The hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise for the north side in length, and there shall be hangings of a hundred cubits long, and his twenty pillars and the twenty sockets of brass, the hooks of the pillars and their fillets of silver. And for the breadth of the court on the west side shall be hangings of fifty cubits, their pillars ten, and their sockets ten. And the breadth of the court on the east side eastward shall be fifty cubits, the hangings of one side of the gate shall be fifteen cubits, their pillars three, and their sockets three. And on the other side shall be hangings fifteen cubits, their pillars three, and their sockets three. And for the gates of the court shall be an hanging of twenty cubits of blue, purple, and scarlet, fine twined linen, wrought with needlework, and their pillars shall be four, and their sockets four. All the pillars round about the court shall be filleted with silver, their hooks shall be of silver, and their sockets of brass." There are different ways to approach a study of the tabernacle. Uh, when you read various authors, uh, they generally take one of two approaches. They either move from the outside in or the inside out. I want to do justice again to the biblical uh, pattern, and that is that the Lord begins his instructions in chapter 25 with instructions regarding the ark and the mercy seat. Uh, that is instructive. Christ is always the center of the Bible. And Christ is the center and the preeminence when it comes to instructions such as this. However, there is some benefit in coming at it from the outside in. Because what you see there is you get the perspective of the ordinary Jew. And so in terms of the edification for our own souls, there is some benefit to looking at it from the outside first. The ordinary person is encamped around the tabernacle. And we saw that last time, the tabernacle in the center. And they were encamped around it in a very literal, physical sense. So what did it mean to them? Now you have in your hands now a, a rudimentary diagram, uh, an artist's impression of what the tabernacle in the wilderness uh, may have looked like. And you'll see on your diagram, uh, there's a, a surrounding fence surrounding the inner structure. There is then that a tent known as a tabernacle proper. And the tabernacle proper was divided into two areas, the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. Now the Holy of Holies, well that was only for the high priest. And chiefly the lessons there concern the person and work of Christ. The Holy Place uh, that consisted of three items of furniture. Uh, they were there. The uh, altar of incense was there. The table of showbread, the candlestick. Uh, they were there in the Holy Place. And there's much to learn regarding the work of the priest there. 
And as we think of the priest there, we see many lessons for the believer regarding communion and fellowship with God in and through Christ. So the most holy place, the high priest, speaking of Christ and his work. The, the holy place then, speaking of the work of the priest and teaching lessons regarding the ordinary believer and their fellowship with God. But the court, so here we're thinking about the structure or the surroundings around the tabernacle proper, enclosed with this fence. The court was the place for public worship and assembly. And when you see the items of furniture there, the brazen altar and the laver, they give us many lessons regarding how humanity approaches God. We're going to think about the gates. We're going to think of people coming to the gates. We're going to think about the brazen altar and the sacrifice there. We're going to look at the, at the laver and the lessons regarding sanctification. We're, we're looking at what the court teaches for the people of God. What lessons are taught regarding the people and their approach to God. And so in light of these things, I want to exhort you again to highly value seasons of public worship. To count public worship as something that is to be highly valued in your life week by week. We live in a day when the spiritual climate is cold. The tide is out. And in light of that, from the pulpits, there's a tendency to emphasize a private walk with God. Private communion. You see, such emphasis is vital to expose the hypocrite. The Lord used this method himself in the Sermon on the Mount. He highlights the issues of fasting and tithing and prayer. And he draws the listener's attention to the fact that for their prayer to be real, it ought to be private prayer. Prayer offered in the presence of God in secret. And that emphasis is crucial today. Because in days of spiritual coldness, there's a tendency for people to be religious in a very hypocritical external fashion. And so whenever the tide is out, preachers will tend to emphasize the need for private devotion and for private communion, examining people regarding the danger of hypocrisy. However, I would always be fearful that such an emphasis on private communion would lead people to the conclusion that private communion is more important than public. Or you can engage in private communion and neglect public. Nothing can be further from the truth. When a believer's heart's on fire for Christ, they will always want to be in the place of public assembly. When you're burning in your zeal for Christ, you'll want to be with God's people and you'll want to praise God from the heart. Public worship will be highly valued when there is a rising tide of private communion. I think of the psalmist, his heart alive for God cries out, let us exalt his name together, together. And so before we look at the details regarding the court, its materials, its structure, the gate, and etc., I want you to see that when you study the language of Scripture, you see the court as a place for worship. A place for this public worship. And to do that, I want to turn your attention to the Psalms. Because when you study the word court or courts in the Psalms, you will see this emphasis comes to the fore. So we've read the instructions, and we'll come back to that in Exodus 25. But tonight, please turn to begin with to Psalm 96. 
And we're going to spend our time in the Psalms, and you're going to have to turn back and forward to various Psalms just to get a sense of the emphasis in the Word of God. Now, at times, uh, the word courts may be used in the Psalms. Other times, the word court in singular. Sometimes a likely reference is to the temple, Solomon's temple and the courts there. At other times, it's referring to the court of the tabernacle. When David speaks to the court, he's, of course, referring to the tabernacle, not to the temple. The temple, of course, following after David's life. So please forgive me, I'm going to muddy the waters in terms of distinction here. Because the tabernacle court leads directly into the temple courts. So don't see them as being a separate issues. One leads into the other. And therefore, I, without any embarrassment, will point your attention to both in these various Psalms. But the first thing to note then is the command to worship. Worship is something we do in obedience to God. Look at Psalm 96 and the verse number 8. Give unto the Lord... The glory due unto his name. Bring an offering, and listen, and come into his courts. So there's the beginning. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Say among the heathens that the Lord reigneth. Here's instructions and commands regarding public worship. In the presence of others, that others would hear, hear what is being said when the people come into the courts and bring an offering in God's name. Then look at Psalm 100. The 100th Psalm, uh, of course, very well known. We always sing it regularly in the, uh, in the Scottish Psalter version. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve, and that word serve is a worship term in the Old Testament. Serve the Lord of gladness. Come before his presence with singing. And then verse 4. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. Here's instructions, commands. Worship is not an optional aspect of the Christian life for the people of God. It's right at the very forefront of what it is to be a child of God. It is to hear the command of God and to obey that command and to come with the heart. We're to serve the Lord with gladness, verse number two. We're to come before his presence with singing. Worship is commanded. And to be absent from worship, barring providential hindrances, to be absent from worship, particularly in the Lord's day, is to be guilty of sin. It's that simple. I understand, we all understand, there are certain times where providence may hinder us from being in the place of public worship. But that's sinful if we are not hindered through these providences. Paul, Hebrews chapter 10, let us not forsake the assembling ourselves together. We're to come together. We're to meet together as the people of God. Now you may say, well, we can just come as we please. Well, what you should see in the command is that not only are we commanded to come, we're commanded to come joyfully. Now here, here the wise Soul, I'm using wise somewhat sarcastically, that wise soul will say, Preacher, don't you know that you can't command the emotions? I say, No, I didn't know that. I didn't know that at all. Because the Bible regularly commands our emotions. We are to rejoice. 
we are to come with gladness. And so that, I warn you, dear child of God, that will not happen automatically. There is a requirement. If you're going to obey the command to worship, you must make sure that you come in the right spirit. Oh yes, you may come with tears in your eyes due to the sorrows of the day, but you will come with joy in your heart when you contemplate the gospel. Now what happens in in many circles is that the Lord's Day morning is viewed as a time for a long lie. We'll have a long lie, a late breakfast, we'll quickly pull a shirt on, and we'll get into the house of God. And they wonder why they get nothing out of worship. When the command in the Word of God is to come with your heart prepared in such a way that you're going to be in the right frame of mind to properly worship God. To come with gladness. It's a serious exhortation. It's not a matter of a preacher wanting a happy bunch of people before him in the pews. It is that God demands that we come with gladness. This is God's demand upon us, not a preacher's demand. And therefore, to not fulfill this is to be guilty of sin. And once more, do we not find ourselves praising God for Christ's blood that cleanses us from all sins? For how often we come into the house of God and there is not this gladness. There are so many sins that the people of God torrent in their lives. And this is one of the foremost. Joyless, heartless worship is a sin and affront to the grace of God. So you have the command to worship, and you see it in its fullness there. And it's connected with the courts, the court of God. Then think about the commencement of this worship. Why do we worship God? Well, we know that Christ in John 4 says the Father seeketh such to worship him in spirit and in truth. Well, let me show you two, two verses. First of all, Psalm 65. Turn back there, please. Psalm 65. And the verse number four, because when you think about the commencement of worship, we should see it from two perspectives. There is a Godward aspect and there's a manward aspect. In the Godward aspect, you see that in verse number four. Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. And we shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. So from God's perspective... Worshippers are produced by the grace of God according to his sovereign electing purposes. Those who worship him are those whom God has chosen. What a joy that is. That we're in the house of God because God has been pleased to choose us to worship him. But there is also a manward aspect to it. Look at Psalm 84, please. Psalm 84 And the verse number two. My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. When God works in our hearts, and when Christ seeks out worshippers, he puts within them a burning desire to be in his presence. And so worship commences... Because men want to be there. They want to be there by the grace of God. So when we're looking at both together, the Lord chooses them, but God works in our hearts by grace, and then he gives a longing, a longing to be in the courts of God. 
My soul longeth, even fainteth, for the courts of the Lord. Longing for public worship without longing for God is religious hypocrisy. It's not that we want to come because our friends are here or because we want to have some social interaction. When God works in our hearts, in the language of the psalmist, my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. It's not about the place, it's about the persons, the triune God, there in public worship, and our hearts yearn for this spiritual burning desire for public worship. This is one of these areas that, if we're being honest, we know is in our hearts only in part. But praise God, it's there at all. We long for it to be stronger. We long for it to be more and more intense. At times it is. But praise God even for the fact that we have a glimmer of this in our souls. Because even that glimmer is not natural. God works it by His grace. In the third place, let me say something about the conduct in our worship. The conduct. Again, when you survey the court language in the book of Psalms, there are two matters that particularly come to the surface. One is very familiar, and the other one less so. The familiar one is that public worship is a time to publicly rejoice in God. I've already looked at the command to come with gladness. Look at the Psalm 135 then. In Psalm 135. So I'll reflect on Psalm, uh, the Psalm 100, and they were to come and serve with gladness. But look at the, the Psalm 135. Because here I want to look particularly at the source. So I, I, I discussed the preparation. I, I discussed the desire that we have, by God's grace, to obey the command to come with gladness. But in Psalm 135, we see what the cause of this gladness is. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the name of the Lord. Praise him, O ye servants of the Lord. Ye that stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. We are met together with joy because of a desire to publicly rejoice in God. To praise the name of the Lord. That reference is to praise the Lord himself. In the perfections of his nature, in the perfections of his goodness, his grace, his mercy, his holiness, his justice, power, goodness and truth. All of those things that we reflect upon in worship, we want to do so publicly. It's a time to remind ourselves that public worship is all about God. We are here to exalt his greatness. Right worship desires to rejoice in the glory of God. Now, one of the tragedies of the shallowness of the contemporary uh, Christian music scene in terms of public worship is that they emphasize joy, but they emphasize joy with the absence of God. And so when you have shallow doctrine and shallow hymnody, and without exalting in the fullness of the glories of God, you cannot have this biblical joy. You may have some man-made aberration, but true spiritual joy delights in the deep things of God and in the glories of his perfections and delight to make that known. But the second part of this public worship and conduct, again, I says, is somewhat less familiar to us. Turn back to Psalm 116. The verses, I believe, will be very familiar when we see them. 
But they're perhaps, in, in the immediate sense, something we would not think of in terms of what we do when we come in public assembly. To Psalm 116 and the verse number 18. The psalmist says, I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of thee, O Jerusalem, praise ye the Lord. Is this reference to vows? They're mentioned over again in the same psalm, and back in the verse number 12 through 14, or verse number 14, but look at 12. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits towards me? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Vows. Ezekiel, or sorry, Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 5, don't turn to it, verse 4 says this, When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. Well, there is a time and a place where God's people will, they will give vows unto God. And here the psalmist is saying, these vows, they are to be paid in the courts of God. And we're considering the courts tonight. And the courts of God, that's a place to come and to pay your vows. Right, what does that mean? Well, turn back to Psalm 66. Here we're going to move away from the court language for a moment or two and just consider something of these matter of these vows. In the Psalm 66, in the verse uh, number 13, I will go into thy house with burnt offerings. I will pay thee my vows. Now what you see in that Psalm is that he has been in times of trouble. Verse number uh, 17, I cried unto him with my mouth. Verse 19, God hath heard me. He hath attended to the voice of my prayer. He's been in affliction. Men have ridden over his heads, verse number 12, through fire and through water. There's been a challenge. And in response to those troubles, he's then brought these vows unto God. You get the same in the Psalm 50. Turn back to the Psalm 50. And you'll see these vows, they are described in terms of thanksgiving. In Psalm 50, in the verse 14, Offer unto God thanksgiving, and pay thy vows unto the Most High. His vows are made in trouble, and he's committed to praise God upon deliverance. Trouble has caused him to cry unto God, and God has answered his prayers and is therefore vowed to give praise to the Lord. Ties in well with Psalm 116. You go back there again. In Psalm 116 begins, I love the Lord because he hath heard my voice and my supplications, because he hath inclined his ear unto me, therefore will I call upon him as long as I live. He's in tight of trouble and the psalmist commits himself, commits himself to the Lord. When you come to Christ, you do make a commitment. You cry unto God in your troubles, in the trouble of your sin. As death comes upon your soul and you find yourself facing death in the very face and you wonder, how am I going to live? And you cry unto God and you commit yourself. You've heard me, therefore I will live for you. That's what it is to be a Christian. When God delivers us out of our sin troubles, we determine in our souls we're going to live for Christ forevermore. But what we forget about is that public worship is a place to pay those vows. It's not the only place. 
but as a place. And so when we come to the house of God, it is a time to remember and recall, Lord, you have delivered me out of trouble. Therefore, when I come here, I'm going to praise you with all of my soul. I'm going to offer this thanksgiving. In essence, our voice are very simple. I'm going to love God above all, and I'm going to live for God's glory above my own glory. That's what it is to vow to worship God. So those are some of the things that stand out in the conduct in our worship. But finally, as we close, think about the consequence or the benefits in public worship. Do two verses. And this is, I want to simply encourage you as we close. The Psalm 84 and the verse number 10. Or the psalmist says, For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. The better word there is a common word for good, used for prosperity and wealth. The psalmist says it's good to be in the courts of God. It's for our spiritual good. He's the same. Look at Psalm 92. The Psalm 92 and the verse number 13. And with this we finish. Those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bring forth fruit in old age. They shall be fat and flourishing. Those saints who persevered in public worship are known for their fruitfulness and how they flourish into old age. I fear for this generation. Public worship has become something that is so unpopular. At least it would seem to be. As church after church has cancelled public worship service or some other particular venture. And they're neglecting the importance of the people of God meeting together to worship together. That will not produce fat and flourishing Christians. It's going to produce thin and weak and feeble Christians at a time when we need believers to be strong. And so I preach to the choir. I understand that. But I want to encourage you again, do not grow weary in well-doing. There is tremendous benefit in going through the habitual practice of week by week meeting in the public place of worship. That we would meet with God and worship God and rejoice in God, but also that we would grow. And that we would benefit from being in the courts of God. So that's, dear child of God, that's an overview of some of the texts in the Psalms that speak of the courts of God. We'll come back in a future study and look more at some of the details of these things. May God bless his word tonight for his name's sake. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m., A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170. That's 610-993-3170. Or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified.